very interactive. He's not just blasting away like information. Um, he's dealing exactly with where people are at. And I think I, I love that. I love um, that you know, he's speaking to you know, their futures, their finances, their imagination, what authority is. And I, I, I just really, that to me, I, I, just, I love how Jesus ministers to people. It's not very, you know, in so many ways, religious. It's, it's, it's where people are actually at. So let's, let's read verse 12, or chapter 12, excuse me, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. He says, a man planted a vineyard uh, and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press uh, and built a tower. And he leased it to the tenants and he went, went to another country. When the season comes, he sent his servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head, treated him shamefully, and they sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is an interesting little parable, little story um, that he's sharing here. You know, a day of reckoning will come one day. This owner of these these uh, vineyards, a lot of they, they think, a lot of people think um, the way it works is that they wouldn't pay money each month; that they would actually uh, part of their rent would be, you know, getting. Uh, the juice or the olives or you know whatever it is that they're um, they're building that's kind of the rent and this owner he's incredibly patient he sends so many people I mean he sends four right the sin servant another servant another and then many others and then so four plus many others so he sends you know I don't know a dozen people they were all beat or killed and yet he keeps sending people he keeps sending people back. And I think it speaks to something really important on the owner's part. You know, this is a parable of, of Jesus, of God sending Jesus to, to Israel. And they keep on stoning the prophets. See, we kind of get to that at the very end of it. But I think it speaks to something real important. And there's a big difference between revenge and reckoning. Revenge is more from personal moral outrage, punishment that comes from personal vengeance. Like you're punishing somebody else because of what you believe to be right or wrong. Reckoning is more of an action set, setting something right by calculation, by, by like what's right in this situation, what's right and what's wrong. And it reminded me of the story in John chapter 8. Remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? Uh, that I think that's it, there's this kind of an interesting story that kind of parallels to this. Um, in John chapter 8, it says this, uh, in, starting in verse 7, Let him who is without sin, this is Jesus speaking to the, to the people who brought this woman to, uh, to Jesus. He says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he bends down, writes on the ground, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I commend you. Go from here and sin no more. You know, this story 
speaks of like the truth of justice and the reckoning of sin. John Piper says this about that passage uh, in verse 7, speaking of, of let him who is without sin be among the first to throw a stone at her. Um, of course, that doesn't work as a basis for justice, for social justice in particular. No criminals would be brought to justice if judges had to be sinless. That's why I said Jesus is going to reestablish righteousness. He's going to do it on the foundation of grace. From now on, or for, for now, he's speaking of this time, there's zero grace, zero humility, zero compassion, which means there's zero law-keeping. People don't want to keep the law if there's, there's nothing that's fundamental underneath it. And he says throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus standing against the Pharisees' view of the law, saying, in effect, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or if, uh, if from Matthew 9, or if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? From John 7. In other words, the law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. That he's, Jesus is reestablishing righteousness. He's reestablishing what it means. And it's from this point, from, this, from the cause and the case of love. And, and then he speaks of himself in this, back in our passage today, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? And this is speaking of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing. And is it, and is it marvelous in our eyes? Um, you know, to that, uh, Matthew 21 adds at the end of this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, um, from Israel, and given to a people producing of its fruits. Uh, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when anyone falls on it, it will crush him. The choice between the religious leaders here, for the religious leaders here, is the choice before everybody. We can either be broken in humble surrender before God, or completely uh, before God, or completely broken in judgment by God. Um, by the way, also kind of speaking of that, Jesus is often likened to a stone or a rock in the Bible. He's the rock of provision that follows Israel in the desert from 1 Corinthians 10. He's the stone of stumbling in 1 Peter 2. He's the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms of this world from Daniel 2. He is the one upon which all justice it prevails and is and is and is real. So, verse 12, they seek to arrest him, but they're fearing the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against him. So they le- so he they left him and they went away. I think this is kind of where we so often find ourselves. I think it's where we're finding ourselves right now in some ways that we're in a period of waiting. Waiting while Jesus is preparing to set things right. We want justice. We want to see things set right. We want to see things, you know, be be like be as they should be. But Jesus is waiting. He's waiting for things to get set right. And I think, and, and, to, and actually, he himself to set things right. So that's kind of where I think we find ourselves. Verse 13. So they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians trying to trap him in his talk. And they come to him and they're saying, Teacher, we know that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful, they're asking, is to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, that's, and I think this is where Jesus, he's now interacting with, their, with their, their, uh, their question about finances and about, you know, 
what they should do. Should they pay taxes? Should they not pay taxes? They're asking these questions. But he knows their hypocrisy. And I think, you know, verse 15 here says that, that that's their sin. They're flattering Jesus, trying to trap him in a test. Um, I recently had a friend of mine, you know, I think we all have questions like this, that, you know, what should we do? How should we act? What should we be like? And a friend of mine was telling me a story about a friend of theirs who was trying to quit smoking. And, you know, smoking's not good. I don't, I don't think it's great. But they were, they were asking God uh, in prayer, like, like, for some sense of, like, how to quit. They'd struggled, you know, with smoking their whole lives. And um, this person who was praying about this felt felt from God, like, what should I do? How should I try to quit smoking? And, and they, she felt like God said to her, um, why don't we start with not flattering people? I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting to think that, like, sometimes, you know, we think of something like, you know, God wants to do something in our lives or speak to us, but, you know, what if it's something really, really, really fundamental, really simple? Like, what if it's just, you know, instead of, like, trying to quit smoking, what if it's trying to quit flattering people? You know, we have things inside of us that are really hard to see. They're so easy to see in other people, but they're so hard to see in ourselves. And, that, you know, smoking, bad habit, yeah, it's a bad habit. But what if it's just something as simple as just not flattering people instead? And I think, I, to me, I thought that was a fascinating look at what, at how God wants to deal with us. Sometimes we think it's this thing that we feel like we struggle with so much. But what if it's something altogether different? I think that's part of what happens here. So, so, you know, Jesus says to them, why put me to the test, right? So they're trying to test him. Like, you know, they're flattering him, trying to butter him up so, like, they'll say something nice to him, right, or, what, or whatever. And he says, why put me to the test? Let's, let's take a look. Bring me a denarius, bring me a coin, and let's take a look at it. You know, I think that's, to me, genius on Jesus' part. Inspection. Paying attention is so helpful. I love that Jesus does this. He's looking around. You know, there's so many questions that we have of this world, of the things around us, of the, of the powers around us, of the um, authority around us. And I think, like, let's just take a look is all he's saying. And I think that kind of logic is so helpful in so many matters because a lot of times, you know, we jump to conclusions or jump to answers rather than just be like, what's actually going on here? And inspecting it. So he, they bring one to him. <laughs> I like this. And he says to him, you know, looks at it. Whose inscription and likeness is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. And they marvel at him. I think that's a great way to look at our lives. Um, clearly, God lays out if people have a claim on things, like this is, <laughs> this is his, Right? Then it's his. Then, then, then great. Um, whatever's his, go for it. Uh, you know, then the question kind of comes up, what does God have a claim on? And I think, you know, whatever is his, right? Whatever looks like him. And I'd say, of course, that's all things. You know, the uh, scripture says the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it or, or the, the fullness thereof. It's all, this is all his. Um, but... If people do, if people also have a claim on things, then give it to them. Don't hold out on giving to Caesar what is his, on giving to, 
the government. Like Jesus affirms, I think here, that the government makes legitimate requests of us. And we're responsible to God in all things. If we're his, we're responsible to him in everything. But we also must obedient to government uh, in matters civil and national, like normal things. Like, you know, I, I don't want to, like even having service this morning, they, you know, CDC is giving us recommended guidelines. It's great. I, I want to, as much as is in my power, do as many of those things as possible. But until they say, no, you know, no public meetings at all, I mean, you know, I know Italy's doing that and, and some countries are. In the meantime, I, wanna, I want to, as best I can, obey. But I think ultimately, we are God's. We're his. And that's who we really truly answer to. So uh, then the Sadducees come. This is kind of like one after another, after another, after another, kind of blasting away at Jesus here. And he just keeps responding. I, I, he's, again, he's meeting them right where they're at. He's not trying to bowl them over with, with all the rights and wrongs. He's just interacting with them as they're coming to him. He's responding. Jesus is responding to people's requests and concerns and fears and worries. Verse 18, the Sadducees come to him. They say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, maybe a hypothetical question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, raise up for an offering for his brother. That There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And then the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For she had seven as her. Uh, uh, for seven had her as as a wife. So this is kind of imaginative, you know, imaginative uh, question as to whose person, whose wife is this? If seven brothers married her, no, no one had offspring. No one had kids from these relationships. What's the deal? What happens in the resurrection? Remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're just kind of trying to get Jesus a little bit. Jesus says to them, is it not the reason, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> he's, a, he's like, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not paying attention to the scriptures and you don't understand God's nature, his power. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Whoa. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Woo! I don't, I don't want to hear those words from Jesus. You are quite wrong. Um, yeah, again, the, spirit, the Sadducees are the ones who don't believe in, in the spiritual. If you die, you're dead. That's how they, how they see things. I think there's a few really interesting things that you see here from Jesus. One, you know, he's quoting scripture in the second half there, but the first half, the verse 25, they when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. He's saying this. Jesus is sort of giving out this bit of information. Um, we're not married in heaven. It's it, we're but we're like angels in heaven. I think that's also kind of interesting here. So marriage, you know, is a dim picture here of what an eternal life with God is like. It's not all the same. This, you know, we, there, we talk about Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about um, 
things being come to perfection. And the perfection of marriage in heaven is not necessarily to each other, to our spouses, but we are the bride of Christ. We are his, ultimately, uh, eternally. So it kills a little bit of the whole Mormon world's, you know, they have their own world's idea. That kind of gets rid of that. Um, also that we're, um, you know, uh, John 3.2 says that we're made like him. Um, along with this thing that we're like angels in heaven. So how that works out, I don't quite know. I'm not, I, I don't know what that looks like. But we have bodies brought to perfection. All will be well. I think that, to me, is, is just a little picture. You know, we don't have, like, all of what heaven is like. We don't quite know. We know these little kind of bits and pieces of it. There's not marriage like we know of it here we're more like angels in heaven. We're made like him. We have perfect bodies. Um, you know, the, the uh, asphalt is gold in heaven. You know, just these little kind of tidbits we have. It's not all completely clear. But I think it's interesting to me that at the end of this bit here of Scripture, Jesus lays out to the Sadducees, you are quite wrong. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all these people that are coming to Jesus and testing him, I believe they're honest, earnest, hardworking, and still wrong. I, I think it's interesting that you, we can find ourselves, um, you know, doing uh, in so many ways a lot of the right things, the right attitudes, the right, but still be wrong. And I don't, I don't believe it's a sin to be wrong. We can always turn towards what's right. We can always turn towards God and His Word his scripture, the power of God. We can always turn towards him. I don't think these guys are in sin in that they're wrong, in that they're wrong, but they are wrong. And that's what he says here. You're quite wrong. You don't understand it fully. And we see that in this next scripture too. Now this one is just one of the scribes came up. It says, verse 28, and heard them disputing with each other, arguing with each other. And seeing that he answered them well, like he's, he's apparently listening to these different Arguments about this imagination story or, you know, uh, taxes, can we, who to pay taxes to. And um, he asked him, of Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Right? What, I, I want to know. You know, it's, it come, kind of reminds me of the rich young ruler a little bit. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Similar kind of thing. What commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answers him. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, these two. And the scribe says to him, so this person, now remember, this would be a person who, who takes track of Scripture, who like keeps track of it, right? So this guy probably knows the Scripture. He's like a smart, intelligent um, like really well put together person who who reads and writes and you know it's I don't know really smart person so the scribe system hey you're right teacher like you know you know what you're talking about you have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him and to love the uh, love him with all the heart with all the understanding with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices so this guy's kind of like you know telling Jesus, oh, good job. You sound like you know what you're talking about kind of thing. And Jesus saw, verse 34, that he answered wisely. And he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dare, dare ask him any more questions. Man, this, this guy has got some, 
gumption. I don't know. There's probably a better word to say that. But just like something in him, like he, he's like speaking to Jesus like, you know, like good for you kind of thing. That's bold. But I also am kind of fascinated by Jesus' response to him. You're not far from the kingdom of God. This guy believes the right things. You know what's so interesting about faith? Like the, uh, James says that even the demons believe and tremble. It's not just knowledge. It's not just understanding. It's not just that we believe the right things themselves. But it's that we act on them and that we, you know, that we put our lives in God's hands. You know, it's like, um, I don't have a stool up here, but it's like, you know, a, a stool or a chair. You know, I believe that that stool or that chair exists. I believe, like, I could tell you all about it. I could, you know, like, describe it and, and, and tell you about the spindles and all the, all the little kind of intricate parts of it. But if I don't ever put my weight on it, I'm not really trusting it for anything. I'm not really trusting this thing to hold my weight, Right? It, it, is that, it is not just that we believe and have right knowledge, but that we're actually putting our weight on it, trusting it for something, trusting it to hold us up. That's faith in God. And Jesus starts to uh, interact. So he's, you know, he's going back and forth and back and forth with these people on this. And then he kind of gets to himself in this. And he sa- it says in verse 35, Jesus taught in the temple. And he said, how can the scribes, maybe even speaking of the one he just talked to, say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, that name, the son of David, this is also one of, besides King David, who was in the Old Testament, this is also one of the great Old Testament titles of the Messiah. Uh, founded on the covenant, the, the promise that God made with King David in 2 Samuel 7. It identifies the Christ as the chosen descendant of King David's royal line. So this is, the son of David is like a title for himself. And he quotes, uh, verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put uh, your enemies under your feet. David So this is Jesus speaking. David calls himself Lord, so how is he also his son? And the great throng that heard him gladly. Now, uh, Revelation chapter 22 says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And Romans 1-4 shows Jesus is both son of David and the son of God. We must not neglect either facet or either part of of Jesus' person. He's both truly man and truly God. He can only be our savior if he's both. Um, so far, Jesus has been really patient with people, right? He's interacting, and he still will be, but he's always getting to this root. Who do people say that I am? He said that to the disciples. Uh, verse 36 here, uh, this quote, <coughs> excuse me, is from Psalm 110. Uh, it says, you know, the Lord said to my Lord. This is this kind of this weird saying, but the first Lord there is uh, Jehovah or God, Right? The second is Adonai or Master. So the Lord, so the so Jehovah God, a proper name for God, and the second Adonai or Master, or you know, um, my God is another way of saying it. Um, so Jesus is saying that David could see that the Master, that the one who is the one to come to save, is also God Himself. He's part of God the Father, even though he's a descendant. 
Basically, I think simply this. If God can make everything, then surely he can make a descendant of himself the Savior. Right? That's kind of how that lays out there. It's a little bit difficult to explain. Anyway. Uh, Verse 38. And in his teaching... He says, beware of the scribes. So now he's, now he's giving a warning. He's kind of talking about the nature of who he is, and now he gives this warning. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive great con- greater condemnation. So Jesus is describing this thing about people to, uh, to look out for. And these are religious leaders. So these, these are some of the people that he's interacted with. And he's speaking to this great throng of people, this big group of people. And he's basically saying, beware of these people who are trying to look good in, other pe- in front of other people. And for us, a little bit of this kind of like, what? Like, you know, uh, walking around in long robes. Like it's people who are wearing house coats in Walmart or something. Like it seems strange to us. Like, like what does this look like? I always thought, they, this isn't like a thing so much anymore, but I always thought people who wore like the Bluetooth headsets, I always felt like they were trying to look cool a little bit. Like, you know, they've got like something and like, you know, talking to somebody who's not there. Um, I think there's, you know, we get in our heads sometimes really strange things about what it means to look cool in front of other people or for other people. And I think this is kind of thing. I always had this kind of kind of aversion. Like, you know, sunglasses have a, you know, a um, function, right? They're, they're there to keep the sun out of your eyes. But I always have this picture in my, I don't know why, when I was a young, younger person, like remember the movie Risky Business and Tom Cruise wore the sunglasses. And I always thought, somebody's trying to look cool wearing sunglasses. And to this very day, if I ever put on sunglasses, I think I'm trying to look cool. Like it's kind of a weird thing that I have in my brain. But I think there are many people, maybe, maybe all people have some version of this. And he's, he's giving examples that people would have understood in those days. And you know, it's interesting. Like so this long, walking around in long robes, you're trying to look cool. Or like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, who doesn't like being greeted? Everybody likes that. Everybody wants to have people know their name. They remember the television program Cheers. You know, every, uh, everybody knows your name. That's in the song. Norm would come into the bar and everyone would say, Norm. It's like, a, you know, this greeting thing. Greeting in the marketplaces. Everybody wants that. Um, best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feast. Um, that you would be recognized by your peers. Who, who among us... Now, I don't know, maybe you're really, really, really introverted and you don't like this, but like if you're sitting at a restaurant, if you're going to go to Red Robin and have a thing, who wants to sit on the very end in the corner? Nobody. You want to sit in the middle. We're surrounded by all your family and your friends, right? Everyone has this in them. Um, and even after that, like, you know, he talks about devouring widows' houses. And just in just a few verses from now here, we're going to see that these widows' houses have been taken by really evil and surreptitious means, um, the very same people, they're going to get the widow's last two coins as well, that they're taking things that are not theirs. Um, and then lastly, in this, this pretense for making long prayers. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus is pointing out that there is a motive behind a long prayer to God. Like, I, I don't know if I could say this, like, you know, long prayers are 
evil or bad or a pretense for something weird. I don't know if I have the ability to say that personally. <laughs> I, I, I just think it's, it's weird. You know, that's an attempt. Uh, pretense is an attempt to make something that is not the case appear as true. As if you really know who God is, and if you really know who God is, you're going to pray for a long, 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 long time, or preach for a long, long, long time kind of thing. Jesus is taking all of these um, things, walking around in long robes, greetings in marketplaces, best seats in the synagogues, places of honor at the feast, devouring widows' houses, pretense for long prayers, all these things, and he's saying, are your motives ill? Are your motives for bad intent or bad reason? Like, I don't, you know, I don't think it's in and of itself bad to have a nice seat or to be greeted, but I think Jesus is speaking to something that is deepest of all and most of all in our lives. And I think he wants to address that. He wants to address your fears, your concerns, your worries, and even how you present yourself to other people. So we end off here today with verse 41. He sits down. Opposite the treasury. You know, we have a little offering box in the back. He's like sitting across from it. It's kind of a little bit of a weird thing, I think. And he's watching people uh, putting money into the offering box. Jesus, what are you doing? It's a little weird to me. Jesus is watching people put money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow, she comes in, she puts in two small copper coins, which make one penny. He calls his disciples to him and said to them, <laughs> I just think this is wild. I, you know, I could never do this. Stand on the other side of the offering box, watching everyone come in and put their money in. And Jesus then makes a big deal about it. He calls his disciples to him. He says to them, truly I say to you. I mean, is he saying this out loud, really loudly? I don't know. It seems so weird to me. Hey, this poor widow has put in more than all of these other people who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. Now, Jesus knows this stuff. But she, out of her poverty, she put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, one, a couple things about this. One, he knew something that, that people who were watching didn't know, for sure. But just a few verses before, he's calling these people out who are devouring widows' houses. So, like, a lot of times... Um, People might not have money, so they would give of property and of other things as well. And he's saying these people are, in, for evil purposes and horrible intent, taking what is rightfully theirs and stealing it. Then not only is that happening, but she's also giving her last two coins to these very same people. Like, that just seems wild, but she has pure and undefiled religion. She is doing it because she's doing it. She's doing what's right. Winston Churchill says this, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. God does not need our money. It is our privilege to give to him. Giving is necessary for our sake, not for God's sake. Um, I have a slide, I think, of that song I want to sing. Uh, this is from the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, where the whole realm of nature mine. That were, that were an offering far too small. So, love so amazing, so divine. Devan, demands my soul, my life, my all. Even if everything was mine, that's too small of an offering. God wants my soul, my life, my all. He doesn't care about our money. 
Um, and then I have, I have a slide about a passage, and I want to end today's message with this. This is um, <clears throat> from First Chronicles, and I think it's an interesting look. We started off with King David, the son of David, and I want to end with him as well. Um, this is a story in the Old Testament um, that is David, and he's building an altar. And he says this, Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Anya, Anya, I don't know how to say that, the Jezebite. So David, he goes up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. When Anya was threshing wheat, he turns and he sees presumably this same angel. His four sons who were with him, they hid themselves. Then David approaches, and when Anya looked and saw him, the king, um, that is, he left the threshing hole and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, hey, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. This angel told me to do this, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. David says to, Andrew says to David, excuse me, take it, take it. Let the Lord, the king, do whatever he pleases. Look, I'll give him the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give all this. Don't worry. This is all, this is all for the Lord. Go, you know, take it. But King David replies to Anura, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. That's giving. That's giving to the Lord. You know, I think it's so interesting to me that like we want to so often get away with the least that we can do. And God doesn't want the most we can do. He wants it all. He wants you. He doesn't just want your stuff. He doesn't need your stuff. That's, that, is, that is like inconsequential. He wants everything. He wants you. You're way more important than, than money or things or stuff. You know, all these questions that they have of Jesus, to me, they all boil down to this. All of them. You know, whose wife will it be? What will, be? What will that be? What will... Who cares <laughs> in the end? What really matters in the end is this. That I don't, I'm not going to take for the Lord what's yours. I don't want to offer what to God something that costs me nothing. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me real. I, I, I don't want a bro deal. I want the real deal. I want God himself to come and use this place, us, to do his will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we find 